Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Ms. Purnima Banot. She's an associate professor at Rutgers, and we're going to talk about the malaria, the biology of the uh, malaria parasite. So, Purnima, thanks for coming. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, for listeners that may not know much about malaria or think about it, what, what is it and you know, how many people does it affect? Um, so malaria is actually a really old disease. Um, it's been around um, with humans for as long um, as we have uh, no, uh, known agriculture. Uh, on, in a good year, which means more recently, um, it has, um, there have been more than 200 million cases of malaria each year. Um, and each year that results in the death of over 400,000 people. Um, as recently as uh, 10 years ago, uh, these numbers were almost double of what they are uh, currently. Uh, but even with that progress, uh, you can tell this is a disease that takes a huge toll uh, on human life, mostly uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa um, and mostly uh, of children below the age of five. Right. So when, when someone gets malaria, what happens to them and how fatal is it? Um, so the, um, in terms of what happens, like the kinds of symptoms people experience with malaria, um, it's generally uh, high fever um, and chills. Um, in severe cases of the disease, there, uh, there is um, anemia. Um, if pregnant women um, get malaria, they can often... Um, miscarry or result or um, have babies that have low birth weight. Um, in terms of um, uh, the, um, the reason why uh, especially kids die of malaria is because the disease can very rapidly uh, lead to coma. Um, so for example, there are many descriptions of children, seemingly healthy children who are playing um, uh, in the afternoon and but by the next morning, uh, having developed malaria are, are already in coma um, from which uh, many of them will never recover and will die from it. That's crazy. How, so how does malaria act once it's in the human body? So uh, malaria is caused by a parasite that's called uh, plasmodium. And this is a parasite that is transmitted to, uh, to, to us by mosquito bites. So mosquitoes are the carriers of this disease. And it's a very specific kind of mosquito known as Anopheles. Um, and the Anopheles female mosquito uh, likes to feed on blood because it helps uh, uh, with the development of the mosquito um, eggs within the female. But in taking that blood meal by biting humans, for example, uh, it can, uh, the mosquito itself becomes infected with plasmodium that's in the blood of humans. And then that infected mosquito can pass along that infection to the next person it bites. Uh, the parasites are in the mosquito saliva and are released as the mosquito is uh, biting the individual looking for 
um, a blood vessel. Uh, from the mosquito saliva, the parasites make their way uh, to the liver. Um, they infect uh, cells in the liver and develop within those liver cells for about the next week. Um, in this time, the person has no symptoms, so there's no way um, for them to know that they are infected. Uh, so the parasite is sort of very stealthily increasing in numbers during this week. And um, once the development in the liver is complete, the parasites enter the bloodstream and infect red blood cells in the bloodstream. And this is when uh, the symptoms of malaria um, are manifested. So this is when the chills and the fevers that I had uh, mentioned to you earlier uh, start, uh, uh, start to uh, uh, manifest themselves. And that is the first, usually sort of the, um, uh, the first indication that the person is sick possibly with, uh, with malaria. Within the red blood cell, the parasite continues to divide and increase, replicate and increase in numbers. Um, it will burst out of the infected red blood cell, find fresh red blood cells to infect, and just the cycle can um, keep uh, going on indefinitely unless uh, the person is uh, treated with uh, anti-malarial drugs. Um, and also in this time, if this, uh, when the parasite is in the blood, if this person is uh, bitten by a mosquito, then the mosquito uh, will become infected and be really capable of passing along the infection to uh, another individual. Um, oh, wait, okay. The last thing you said, you said malaria can be passed on from individual to individual? Via, via a mosquito bite. Okay, so okay. It I thought it was not, some other so It's not, uh, yes. Yeah, so it's not, uh, 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 malaria is not transmitted from person to person just by contact between people. Um, but if an infected person is bit by a mosquito and then that mosquito goes and bites another person, then that other person can become infected. But just those two people meeting each other, shaking hands, sitting next to each other, not socially distanced, that will not cause malaria. So hope that is clear. Yeah, yeah no, that makes sense. Um, of the people that get malaria, um, are children most affected? Uh, are some just totally fine? You know, or does it happen more in adults? Like, what's the, the distribution of the effects? So the worst, uh, you know, 80% of deaths um, from malaria are in children below the age of five. And um, we think that's because the ch these very young children have not had their immune systems, have not had time to develop antibodies against the parasite and develop an immune response against the parasite. So they are very vulnerable. Um, as you get older... Um, if, you, um, if you live in a malaria endemic country, as you become older, you are just, you know, from repeated exposure, repeated mosquito bites, um, your body starts to build up an immune response um, and develops protective antibodies. And so typically adults in a malaria endemic country, even when they become infected, don't develop the worst uh, the most severe forms of disease typically. Um, they might have fevers, they might have chills, they might feel really fatigued. Um, you know, they, they, they will feel, they will definitely feel sick, but they are far less likely to die from the disease, unlike uh, very young children um, who have a much um, greater risk of dying from it. Um, another um, patient population that is particularly vulnerable um, uh, is uh, our pregnant women. 
uh, women that are pregnant um, are at high risk of contracting uh, malaria. Um, and so that is another patient population that is really vulnerable, even though they are at, does that answer your question? Yeah, it, yeah, it does. Um, how has the way or the prevalence of malaria infection changed, you know, in countries that are actively trying to stamp out these mosquitoes? And I, I figure every country on earth is trying to do something to get rid of malaria, but you know, what's happening? Like, what are the methods in which they're trying to get rid of mosquitoes and what's the consequence? What's been happening? So actually, the uh, very interesting uh, side story to the control of malaria is really the story of DDT. Um, so I'm sure you're familiar with this uh, insecticide. Um, uh, has a really bad rap for its environmental uh, um, uh, devastation that it causes. Um, this is what Rachel Carson wrote about in Silent Spring, for example, the, um, uh, the uh, effect that DDT had on the environment and on birds, for instance. But DDT was, very, um, was an insecticide that was used extensively for mosquito control um, and malaria control. Um, but since and for a short period of time, it was uh, quite effective uh, in reaching those goals in um, Asia and Africa, um, but then its use was discontinued for the environmental impact it had, and correctly so. Um, also, the uh, mosquitoes started to develop uh, resistance to DDT, um, and at the same time, the drugs that were being used for malaria started becoming ineffective due to the resistance the parasites were acquiring. So there was sort of this perfect storm um, which led to a resurgence of malaria, um, even in countries that had come quite close to eliminating it. So um, currently, the efforts um, that country that various countries are making to uh, eradicate uh, malaria within their national boundaries has a there's a whole set of uh, uh, measures they have to take. Mosquito control is one of them. Using bed nets, for example, to prevent. Um, mosquitoes from being able to bite people, um, having some sort of vector control methods using uh, insecticides um, uh, other than DDT that, are, that do not have uh, a negative environmental impacts. Um, also uh, using, in some cases, uh, anti-malarial uh, drugs for prophylaxis against malaria. Um, so these are all, these are the combinations of these methods uh, are being utilized by different, in some places uh, have been more successful uh, than others for a variety of reasons. In the U.S., for instance, malaria was a significant concern um, even in the, up till the 1950s and 60s in the southern parts of the U.S. Like, and further south, for example, during the building of the, of the Panama Canal, the, um, the, um, uh, the deaths and the illness from caused by mis um, uh, malaria was very significant. Um, and there was a whole set of public health measures that were taken, such as draining um, marshland, decreasing the number of places that mosquitoes could breed, just generally higher sanitation, uh, probably use, you know, air conditioning so people weren't outside as much and more uh, vulnerable to mosquito bites. Um, all of these things together helped in uh, eradicating malaria in the U.S. Um, and some similar measures are being tried uh, currently in countries where that still have malaria. Hmm. 
Um, your study in particular, is it, you know, the mechanisms of transmission? Is it, uh, you know, the biology of the parasite? Like, what are you focusing on? So I focus on the, um, uh, the life cycle of the parasite that occurs in the liver. So this is the very first step of a human infection, and it is absolutely essential for the parasite to be successful at this step, because this is what allows the parasite to establish a niche in the human host from which it can um, uh, sort of perpetuate itself and cause the pathology and symptoms associated with malaria. So um, uh, what I'm interested in learning is what are the mechanisms uh, that the parasite uses to enter, um, to invade a liver cell, um, to develop within the liver cell, and then to exit the liver cell. Um, and the idea being, if we can understand these steps in greater detail, then we might identify the weaker links of this cycle, um, and then we can target uh, those weak spots with drugs uh, such that uh, the disease never progresses to the point where it causes illness. So um, that, is that the liver is, is the liver where the malaria will go first, or exactly, where? exactly. So the liver is the very first step in human infection after the parasite has been introduced via a mosquito bite. Um, it will go to the liver. And if you can prevent it from infecting the liver or block, even after infection of the liver, if you can block it from replicating within the liver, then you have caught it at what's a bottleneck in its life cycle. At this point, parasite numbers in the human are still low um, and uh, the parasite has not increased in numbers exponentially. Um, as it will do once it reaches the blood. So this is the weak link um, in its uh, life cycle in the human host. What, so once it reaches the liver, what, what form is it in and what does it do in the liver? So when it reaches the liver, it is in, um, in, uh, in a form that we call sporozoites. Um, and sporozoites look, they're sort of like crescent-shaped or, you know, or in the shape of a banana, you can imagine, they're, hi they're highly motile. If you look at them under a microscope, you see them um, moving round and round in circles, like really like moving really fast. You'd be astonished at uh, how quickly they move. In the body, what that translates to is that the parasite moves from the skin, which is where it's deposited by a mosquito bite. That's why we scratch when we get bit by mosquitoes because the skin is irritated. Um, the parasite has to uh, move from the skin, make its way from the skin all the way to the liver. So that's quite a long journey. Um, and sporozoites are really adept at this journey. Um, so they make this journey from the skin into a blood vessel, and then the blood carries them to the liver. Uh, somehow the parasite realizes that they've reached the liver, and they, at that point they leave the bloodstream and uh, start to infect liver cells. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Once they're inside a liver cell, they change completely in shape, uh, completely in form. It's almost like a metamorphosis as you know, uh, um, a butterfly larva changes into a beautiful adult butterfly. And it's hard to imagine that the adult butterfly came from uh, you know, this pupa. They, they look completely different. So the parasite does this kind, similar kind of uh, uh, morphological change, um, it stops being motile. It doesn't move around anymore. It becomes 
um, uh, it loses its crescent shape and becomes more like a ball shape or a spherical shape. And then it starts to uh, uh, divide, goes from one to two to four to 16, um, and goes on like this for almost a week inside a single liver cell. And so it allows that this is what allows it to increase in numbers from a single sporozoite infecting a single liver cell will in one week give rise to tens, if not hundreds of thousands of more parasites, which are now uh, uh, infectious to red blood cells. Wait, so inside a liver cell, it's been observed that the parasite will multiply until it literally consumes the entire cell and then bursts out? Exactly. And it bursts out of the liver cell. And, 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 and um, actually bursting out is not, it's almost, um, I, I, I don't have a good word to describe how it exits the liver cell, but it's not like an explosion of the liver cell. Um, more, it's more like the parasite is bundled. Uh, it exits the liver cell in a very clever way. It um, uh, masks itself by wrapping its, uh, around itself the membrane of the liver cell itself so that the um, body's defenses don't necessarily recognize it as being foreign, as being a pathogen, because the membrane, it envelops itself in a membrane that looks like the host cell membrane. And sort of cloaked in this fashion, the parasites leave the infected hepatocyte and once again enter the bloodstream. Uh, within the bloodstream, this wrap, this membrane around them falls apart and the parasites are released into the blood and now they are free to infect uh, red blood cells. Huh. Well, is there an average number of parasites that um, you know, will come out of a liver cell once they, uh, they exhaust it? Um, it's been, it's been, you know, I don't, um, I'm not sure I can give you a firm number. It's been uh, just because this is, this step is really hard to visualize and, um, uh, uh, study intensively, but it, what the estimate is a single infected liver cell will get, can release, you know, 10 to a hundred thousand, uh, infected Jesus. parasites. And, and, and the amazing, even more amazing part is all of these came from a single sporozoite. So the, in the, 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 you know, the logarithmic increase in numbers in, uh, of the parasite in such a short amount of time, it, it's really mind-boggling. And that's and, why... And, and, as I've been observed, um, have animals, for instance, been infected with one sporozoite and you've seen it literally multiply into billions of... In, uh, of into, yeah, exactly. They've been, if they're infected with a single sporozoite, um, it will uh, divide to form something like 10,000 to 100,000 liver stage parasites. And each of those parasites, when it reinfects a red blood cell, will uh, divide 16 to 32 times more. And so it goes from 1 to 10,000 to 100,000 to, uh, 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 to a million, uh, all in the course of uh, one to two weeks. What's the immune response from people? Right. So, How does it hide? So the immune, so, you know, people, uh, our immune system does recognize the parasite. Uh, the immune system does understand that this is not a good sign, uh, but the parasite, it's, uh, um, it's really kind of an arms race. It's really the parasite uh, trying to uh, keep one step ahead of the immune response. So for instance, when it's in the liver, the immune system, of course, it takes uh, some time for the immune system to recognize that there is an infection. 
uh, then the immune system has the problem of trying to find the one infected liver cell amongst millions of uninfected liver cells. So it's really a problem of looking for a needle in a haystack. And all of this time, the parasite is dividing in the liver and getting ready to leave the liver. So, by, so you know, the immune system is always playing catch up. So if the, if the immune cells do not find the infected hepatocyte in time, then the parasite can complete its development cycle in the hepatocyte, uh, which is uh, um, uh, the cell in the liver that is infected. Um, by the time the immune system catches up to the infected liver cell, the parasites are already out of the liver and into the bloodstream now. So now the immune system has to uh, start identifying infected red blood cells. And so it starts again from scratch. Um, the whole time the parasite is uh, really good at changing its uh, surface, uh, surface coat of proteins. So there is a lot of what um, the, the term we use, antigenic variation. Um, and it's, it's, it's as if the, um, the parasite is continually changing uh, uh, the, the coat it has. And sometimes the coat is of one flavor, another time it's another flavor. And the immune system, by the time it catches up to one flavor and uh, is effective against it, the some of the parasites have already changed the coat and they escape that immune response. And so there, there's always, um, the parasite is try it tries to keep one step ahead of the immune system and the immune system um, is uh, playing catch up uh, by producing antibodies against uh, the parasite, uh, producing T cells that recognize uh, infected hepatocytes. Um, and, and sometimes, uh, in, for example, in the case, for instance, um, uh, of coma, when, uh, which is when kids die of malaria commonly, uh, the immune reaction itself can be harmful and cause um, uh, lead to the pathology that uh, causes. So um, that is what the immune reaction um, is doing in the case. Is anyone, um, I mean, so malaria, it affects people, but does it affect animals too? Can you do animal studies with rats or with monkeys or what do you have that, to use? That, yeah, that's a really good question. So um, there are, so the species of plasmodium parasites that infect humans uh, in general do not infect other animals and vice versa, meaning species of plasmodium that infect other animals. And there are species of plasmodium that infect birds, for example. Um, they are particularly, plasmodium infection is particularly bad for penguins. Uh, penguins do not have a natural defense against malaria because typically in the uh, uh, Antarctic, uh, penguins do not see plasmodium. But when you have penguins in zoos or captive penguins that are being rescued from oil spills, for example, then those penguins come in contact with species of plasmodium that infect other birds, such as pigeons and other things that are flying around. And um, penguins can become infected with plasmodium um, and it can be really bad uh, uh, and it can kill a penguin. Um, there are species, but that species that infects penguins and birds does not infect humans. Um, the species that infects rats and mice does not infect humans. And similarly, the species that infects humans does not infect penguins or rats and mice. Um, uh, so there is species specificity. Um, there, there is a species of plasmodium 
uh, that infects primates, uh, uh, monkeys, uh, and if uh, and and can be can also infect humans that come in contact with. So that is a zoonotic uh, species of Plasmodium. Uh, but mostly Plasmodium species that infect humans are specific to humans. Uh, other animals also get a Plasmodium infection, but they don't necessarily have disease in the way that we think of malaria in humans. Well, are you able, I mean, have, have scientists done biopsies and removed one or more parasites and then studied them? Um, so, um, and are you, do you mean, have they removed parasites from uh, other Yeah, from a animals? person, from a person to study them. Um, you can certainly uh, get red blood cells from infected humans, um, and this is collected in the field quite frequently. Um, and um, we can study parasites obtained from human patients in that way. Well, what's been noticed? I mean, what, what kind of learnings can you get by, uh, by doing that? So for one example, um, one thing that's very important for us to understand uh, of uh, what's happening in the field um, is uh, for, in order to understand resistance to anti-malarial drugs. So parasites that are found commonly um, in um, uh, the Thai, Cambodia, Laos region in Southeast Asia, um, parasites that infect humans in that reg uh, region of the world um, have, um, have become, uh, uh, at, at increasing frequency, show resistance to drugs uh, uh, that are used against malaria now. So these are drugs known as um, that, that combinations, including artemisinin, and another uh, um, and other drugs together with artemisinin, and the parasites that we obtain from human patients in um, uh, the Thai, uh, Myanmar, Laos border area in Southeast Asia. These parasites often show uh, resistance to the artemisinin combination therapy. So, by collecting these parasites, we can monitor how much resistance there is, how quickly uh, drug resistance is spreading through the population. This allows clinicians to adjust the dosing, um, the doses um, uh, uh, that they give their patients, and in some cases, change the drugs that they're using altogether. So that is one example of how using um, uh, parasites collected from human patients in the field uh, can be used. Has anyone looked to see if there's a, um, a microbiome of the parasite? And if you're you know, has anyone captured it in the liver and looked at it, maybe looked at its microbiome and then captured it, uh, you know, in a, a red blood cell and see the changes? Um, so I think what's, um, I'm not sure about the micro, that there is, that the parasite itself has its own microbiome because the parasite lives within, um, uh, within a human cell, whether it be a liver cell or a red blood cell. Um, but I think it's an interesting question to see how the microbiome of the human patient uh, might affect uh, the, uh, the disease or the progress of the disease. Because we know that our microbiome, the human, but the, um, uh, the microbiome in the gut of humans affects our immune uh, system. And that effect on the immune system could translate into uh, an effect on how well um, uh, malaria infection is controlled or uh, might affect the immune response that individuals mount against malaria. 
um, what people have done use uh, by obtaining parasites from an infected liver cell or infected red blood cell. Uh, certainly, we've we uh, uh, other researchers have examined what are the genes uh, that the parasite expresses in these stages. What are the prote different proteins uh, it makes, and even how it um, alters the the cell that 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 uh, that it's residing in. So, how does it change the liver cell that it's growing within? How does it change the red blood cell uh, that is uh, that it grows within? Um. I mean, morphologically or function-wise, when you compare the parasite when it's in a liver cell versus a blood cell, how how different is it? So, in some um, in some ways, it is similar, but in other ways, it is quite different. Um, so, um, one big difference between um, uh, the one big difference we see in an infected red blood cell compared to an uninfected red blood cell is that the um, infected red blood cells are often deformed. Uh, there are like, the, you know, sort of knob-shaped structures on the surface of an infected red blood cell. And these knob-shaped structures uh, consist of, of, of proteins that the parasite exports to the red blood cell. And um, uh, uh, they change the structure of the infected red blood, red blood cell making the red blood cells uh, more sticky so that they don't um, um, uh, circulate in the bloodstream as well. And that, uh, um, you know, saves them from being identified as uh, infected cells within the skin and being cleared out. So it's like a self-preservation strategy on the part of the parasite. Um, similarly, in the liver cell as well, the parasite uh, makes uh, uh, um, changes to the liver cells so the parasite can acquire nutrients from uh, the hepatocyte uh, that it needs for its own growth. Um, and some of the pathways that the parasite uses in the liver and in the red blood cell um, are different. So um, we see that maybe the need for fatty acids is higher in the liver stage parasites than it is in the blood stage parasite, for example. Um, so the blood stage parasite needs to break down hemoglobin because hemoglobin is the major component, uh, is, is a big part of, of a red blood cell. But the hepatocyte, on the other hand, has no hemoglobin and uh, liver stage parasites don't need to break down, uh, don't, don't break that down. So that's another mm -hmm. difference. There are there are many, there, there are lots of differences between uh, the two stages and some similarities as well. Oh. well I didn't ask you, once it's in the, uh, the red blood cells, then what? So within the red blood cell, again, it, um, uh, you know, the name of the game is to uh, divide, increase in numbers, uh, exit the liver cell, find a new cell to invade. So the, the, you know, the word parasite itself means it cannot live independently it always has to be within uh, a host cell. And so the parasite, once it's within the red blood cell, um, it divides to, a single parasite will divide to form uh, anywhere from 16 to 32 new parasites. These parasites will explode out of the red blood cell and find new red blood cells to infect. And so this is the reason that this continual invasion and lysis of red blood cells is the reason that uh, uh, malaria patients develop severe anemia because their red blood cells are being constantly eaten up uh, by, the, uh, by the parasite within them. 
Um, so uh, with inside the red blood cell, the parasite uh, continues its uh, differentiation cycle. Um, and also if it can get taken up by another mosquito, uh, that's really good for the parasite as well because that is what enables the parasite to spread uh, to another uh, human. Um, oh, so the point it's in someone's blood, that's when the, uh, you know, the parasite's hoping that a mosquito will, exactly. will bite that person. Exactly. Because when, yeah, because when it's inside the liver, it really can't be taken up by a mosquito. So it really, but once it is in the blood, then it is accessible to a mosquito. Um, and because when the mosquito sucks up blood, it's also going to suck up some parasites that are in that blood. Well, people that have malaria in their blood, are they symptomatic at this point? Or do they feel fine still early on? Uh, so I think it really, it depends on your so, you know, immune status. So if you are someone who has lived in a, a malarial uh, endemic country, then you can have a low number of parasites in your blood, but not show ex experience any overt signs of it. Uh, on the other hand, if let's say you're, uh, you are a traveler who has uh, gone from uh, um, a country with no malaria to a country with malaria and have become infected there, and this is your first time becoming infected, then even with very few parasites in the blood, you might develop quite severe disease. Uh, so I would say that there is a range um, of symptoms uh, depending on uh, what your uh, uh, previous exposure to the uh, uh, parasite is. Well, what changes inside someone once the parasites in their blood? Do they become more, do they tend to get bit, bitten by mosquitoes more often? Do they give off, uh, you know, all of a sudden a pheromone that attracts mosquitoes more often? You know, does the parasite cause that yeah. to happen? Or? That's a really good question. And there are there is some suggestion that that might happen, that the um, parasites, um, you know, release uh, some sort of chemical, some sort of signal that can be uh, picked up by a mosquito and sort of signal to the mosquito that, oh, <laughs> that's attract the mosquito to that, to that person. Um, it's not, you know, that work is very, uh, really very intriguing, but still needs, uh, we still need to see more to be sure that that happens in real life. Um, uh, certainly, you know, as you probably know from experience, there are some people who seem to be bitten, they, that they seem to attract mosquitoes so much more than others. Yep, um, yep. And that is, you know, that is thought to be because of, uh, um, you know, smells and odors and uh, chemicals that certain people release more of than others. And if these are chemicals and odors that are attractive to mosquitoes, then those people get bit by mosquitoes more often, regardless of whether they are infected or not. Yeah, no, that's true. Has anyone identified what makes someone juicier and more <laughs> likely to be eaten by a mosquito? Yeah, there's, you know, there's uh, carbon dioxide is one, uh, one, uh, you know, one, one uh, attractant for a mosquito. Um, uh, there are other chemicals as well that seem, you know, different mosquitoes respond uh, to different uh, chemicals. So uh, there, there's, this is a very active uh, area of study, but it's outside my uh, area of expertise. So I can't, you know, afraid I don't have the most up-to-date knowledge on that field, but there are definitely uh, chemicals that some people release that have been identified 
um, that uh, are act as attractants for Ms. So what are you trying to figure out in particular? What's, the, the, what's your goal? So my goal is to understand how what the, what it takes for the parasite to uh, successfully infect and develop within the liver, and then how we might interrupt that cycle uh, to find drugs that will then. So that that is. Are you able to? Um, I don't know. I guess I, people are not symptomatic when the parasites in their liver, right? Not at the moment, but we, you know, people. Are, there are people trying to develop diagnostic tests for. Uh, this stage of infection. And also we know from the epidemiology, we know during, uh, you know, the rainy season, for example, uh, the mosquitoes uh, population increases in numbers. And so there is, we can predict that around certain, uh, around these months, uh, there is like people are likely to be bit by mosquitoes and have infection in the liver, even, even if they do not have uh, symptoms yet. So um, we can give, if we have these uh, drugs that target liver stages, we can use those drugs in a preventative way uh, based on the what we know of the epidemiology of the. Um, um, so that, that would be the idea. Another group uh, that would benefit from drugs that target the liver stage are travelers from non-endemic countries. And as we mentioned, there are many countries that have uh, uh, succeeded in eliminating malaria altogether um, uh, from them, from, from their borders, but people from these countries might travel to neighboring countries where malaria is still present. So those travelers could take drugs like the ones I'm talking about um, and, be, uh, um, and that would save them from becoming infected when they go to malaria. And that, you, know, yeah, you, you, you can't even biopsy one. someone Mm -hmm. I guess it would it wouldn't even be useful to biopsy someone like if you knew all right this time of year in this area a lot of people are very likely to have the malaria in them but even if you tried to biopsy them if it's just in one cell I mean you're not gonna yes, find it, it exactly so we you know uh, uh, the diagnostics would have to rely on markers in the blood for example and not necessarily look for be looking for that one infected cell in the liver um, but we would look for telltale signs that that infected cell would be released. Uh, so those what about, um, do you know anyone that's making liver organoids? Maybe you could um, you know, have them test this out and see what they see. That's a very good idea. That is a very good idea. And um, we've been trying to develop uh, those systems. That would indeed be very, very good. Yeah, there's a lot of organoid people. There should be some that. Yeah, that'll be willing to work with you on this. You know? Yes, one. Well, yeah, it's the um, um, the liver organoid people often work on organoid human organoid, um, right. and uh, then we would need human infectious uh, sporozoites uh, to infect those human liver organoids to study. But that would be a very useful thing to. Do. I mean, even in the, are you able to culture even you know a couple of liver cells in the lab and. Uh, you know, keep them alive for long enough and try to infect them with a malaria parasite? Oh, absolutely. We do that routinely. We do that routinely. We infect uh, tissue culture. Um, uh, we uh, hepatocytes um, uh, in tissue culture. We infect them with sporozoites. Um, we watch the parasites development within them. We can even do the parasites develop completely within these liver cells. We can collect them from the uh, extracellular medium of these cells uh, uh, a couple of days later. 
and we, if we once the parasites are in the medium, this is equivalent to them being released from the liver cell inside the human into the bloodstream. So we can collect this media, uh, media collect uh, containing parasites and inject them into a mouse and, the, and watch the red blood cells of that mouse become infected with the parasite. So yes, absolutely, we can uh, Indeed, that is what we do uh, when we screen for drugs uh, that might prevent the parasite's infection of the liver or development with this exactly yeah. the kind. So uh, any sense of a breakthrough that would be very helpful in, uh, in combating malaria or at least understanding it? Um, I think any, you know, de- uh, there are so many things that we need that would be so helpful. Anything, um, new drugs would be really useful. Um, uh, understanding um, how the parasite, um, you know, being able to diagnose the parasite in the liver would be very useful. Um, one thing we, I didn't mention at all is that um, there is a species of plasmodium found in uh, South Asia which forms, uh, which can form, go into dormancy when in the liver. And then that dormant liver stage can reactivate months and sometimes years after the original infection has cleared and cause disease once again. And we have very few drugs that infect these dormant uh, liver stages. Um, but, uh, But these dormant liver stages cause a lot of disease. Even if they don't cause death, they still cause a lot of uh, 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 a serious disease. So if we could understand what makes some liver stages go into dormancy and then what wakes them up again, uh, that would be a, a great breakthrough as well. Yeah, yeah. you have no idea what causes uh, them to go into dormancy? Uh, we, we suspect that it's a combination of uh, the host immune response, but really we, we don't have that's a very, you know, that's a very uh, broad statement. We need it to be much more specific and much more precise. Hmm. Interesting. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to, uh, to find out more, more about your work, Pradeema? Uh, they can certainly reach out to me. Um, anyone who'd like to know more about my work, uh, I'm available. Email, uh, the lab has a website that gives a very brief introduction. Uh, they can reach me by email or a phone call. Okay. Well, very good. Um, last question. What do you think is going to be possible maybe in the next five years in terms of malaria? And what do you think is going to take quite a bit longer? But what, you know, what's like the ideal that you would like to see you know, 15, 20 years out? So I think the next five years, um, my answer, if we had had this conversation before COVID, my answer would have been one, would have been one thing. But post-COVID, really, my answer is uh, quite different. And at the moment, what I hope for the next five years is simply that we do not reverse these very hard fought gains that we have made in malaria control over the last 10 years. Um, Given the impact that COVID is having on health systems around the world, uh, the impact, um, you know, the attention that is, when you have such a major pandemic, um, it's uh, understandable that attention shifts away from other diseases, even even ones like malaria that have been around um, for um, centuries and will continue to be around with us um, unless uh, we keep our um, eye on the ball and sort of uh, keep keep pressing. Uh, uh, 
the gas on malaria control. So I hope in the next five years, we do not, uh, we continue to see improvement um, in malaria control. And in 15 to 20 years, uh, really malaria is a disease like smallpox or like polio, um, meaning to say it is a disease that has been eradicated. Yep. Yeah, I've heard tuberculosis, uh, malaria, everything's, you know, um, coronavirus is like a, a scientific parasite sucking up all the attention and multiplying and taking over all the labs. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, nothing else is being done. So, yeah, Absolutely. I understand this it's, cannot be ignored. Yeah, it's, you know, this is, it's, yep, yeah, exactly. It, um, um, it should not be ignored because we have seen before with malaria when attention shifts up, uh, it's a resilient disease. And as soon as attention shifts elsewhere, it is able to come right back. Um, so I really hope the same thing uh, does not happen uh, again uh, in the context of uh, COVID and coronavirus. And um, of course, you know, we have no idea what co-infections with coronavirus and malaria uh, right, uh, yeah. patients, right? We have no, we are only beginning to see uh, what this uh, epidemic is doing in Africa and in India. Um, and I just really hope that uh, it does not make a bad situation even. Very good. Okay. Well, Pranima, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I, I enjoyed my time. Thank you very much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.